Good morning. My name is Helen. Today's reading comes from the Gospel of John, chapter 12, verses 1 through 7. Please follow along in your own Bibles or simply listen as the scriptures are read. Again, that's John, chapter 12, starting with verse 1. Following the reading, I invite you to respond in worship with the singing of the doxology. Parents and guardians of children in preschool and kindergarten, you are invited to escort your kids to the back of the room to join kids' comments upstairs. As you are able, we invite you to stand for the reading of God's word. Hear the word of the Lord. Six days before the Passover celebration began, Jesus arrived in Bethany, the home of Lazarus, the man he had raised from the dead. A dinner was prepared in Jesus' honor. Martha served, and Lazarus was among those who ate with him. Then Mary took a 12-ounce jar of expensive perfume made from the essence of nard, and she anointed Jesus' feet with it, wiping his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance. But Judas is carrying The disciple who would soon betray him said, that perfume was worth a year's wages. It should have been sold in the money given to the poor. Not that he cared for the poor. He was a thief. And since he was in charge of the disciples' money, he often stole some for himself. Jesus replied, leave her alone. She did this in in preparation for my burial. (laughs) This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Should have cleared my throat before I got my microphone on. Good morning. Uh, It's good to see you. My name is Matt. I'm one of the pastors here at Haverhill Commons. It's really great to worship with you, to lament together, and to open God's word together. Uh, I invite you into a moment right now into some reflection, a moment of quiet, a moment of silence, so that we can be present to the Lord and bring our whole selves to the Spirit this morning. So join me in a moment. Lord, Father, God, we know that you love us. If anyone this morning is not sure that you love us, that you love them, I pray that you would show them all over again this morning the depth of your love. In the power of the Spirit, in the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Way back in fourth grade, um, Brett Lashbrook invited me to his birthday party. So Brett was a kind of sporty kid. I was kind of a nerdy kid. So I was pretty stoked to get an invite to his birthday party, and I immediately began brainstorming the perfect present for Brett Lashbrook. So some context, I grew up in Columbia, Missouri, a city about twice the population of Haverhill. Our closest professional sports team was two hours away. So we were much more invested in our local college, the University of Missouri. So college sports are not a huge deal out here in New England, but where I grew up, it was everything. We loved the Tigers. We tailgated before games. We knew the fight song by heart. We knew the secondary fight song by heart. We tore down goalposts on the football field when they won big games. We bled black and gold. M-I-Z-Z-O-U, go Mizzou, baby. So since my friend Brett was into sports, I thought it'd be pretty sweet if the present I got him was a custom-made T-shirt from a store in the mall, a Missouri Tigers T-shirt. 
So the day of the party, my mom took me down to the t-shirt store and I picked out a super cool design and we waited while they did whatever they have to do to get the decal onto the t-shirt. Uh, they put the t-shirt in this bag and my mom paid for it and we were on our way to Brett's house. In the car, I took a closer look at this shirt and that's where things went horribly wrong. The t-shirt was red and yellow. I was mortified. We were minutes from Brett's house and for some still to this un Still to this day, unknown reason, the gift I had planned on giving him was not Mizzou black and gold. It was somehow red and yellow. Iowa State Cyclone red and yellow to make things even worse. One of our rivals. Cue my meltdown. And this wasn't a few sniffles. This was tears flying, snot streaming, bawling my guts out in the car on the way to Brett's house. I could not bear to bring this horrible gift to the party. There was no way I was giving that gift to Brett and watching him open it in front of all of our friends. I begged my mom to take me home. She did not fully appreciate my agony. <laughs> to her, it was a fine present, and we just paid really good money for it. The colors weren't that big of a deal. Just go to the party. In the end, we compromised. I left the poor t-shirt in the car. My mom gave me $5 as a replacement present, and I sheepishly joined the other kids in the backyard, frantically wiping away all the snot and tears and evidence. But to this day, I still remember that feeling of distress and anguish over the thought of giving someone such a terrible gift in my mind. Jeff Gaelic is a researcher at Carnegie Mellon University, and he studies the impact of gift giving, the social impact of gift giving. It turns out we all have anxiety around gift giving. Should we give that toaster off the wedding gift registry? Perhaps that set of silverware that they asked for. Or is that too boring, too expected? Maybe we should get them a Donkey Kong arcade game. <laughs> or a personal massage table with a scented candle and wild orchid rubbing oils, which to this day is the most unique <clears throat> and unexpected gift I've ever received in my life, which is a story for another day. <laughs> Do you ever feel anxious about gift giving? Your friend's birthday's coming up. The neighbor kid is having a graduation party. Your boss is retiring. Christmas is around the corner. Your anniversary is next week. Oh gosh, it's actually tomorrow. What do we do? What do we give? We want to give amazing gifts to people. We want gifts that people will love and enjoy and remember and talk about and mention in future sermons, right? It turns out it's even more complicated than that. In his research, Gaelic points out that when we're giving gifts, we're not only thinking about what the other person might like, we're actually also thinking about what our gifts say about us. Are we generous? Did we spend a lot of money on this gift? Are we creative? Are we unique? Are we thoughtful? And we know as gifts are being opened that they will be evaluated, not just by the recipient of the gift, but by everyone there at the party, which is why I was so worried about my gift for Brett. Was I an inner circle friend? Did I really know Brett? Was our connection special? And if I gave him a t-shirt with the wrong colors, would that signal to all my friends that I was super lame? I mean, $5 was a lot better than the wrong colored t-shirt, but still $5 isn't that special either. There's no wow factor, there's nothing unique about $5. So I never went to another birthday party again. That's not true, I went to birthday parties, right? But man, I was always stressed out about what gift I was gonna give. Gaelic's advice to alleviate gift-giving stress is shockingly simple. He points to the story you guys might know called the Gift of the Magi. 
It's about a young, very poor married couple. For Christmas, they decide that they're each going to get themselves, they're each going to get each other something really special. So they each sell their prized possession in order to show the other person how much they love them. So the wife sells her long, beautiful hair to get her husband an intricate chain for his pocket watch. And the husband sells his pocket watch to get his wife a set of expensive combs for her hair. And the story is supposed to illustrate their deep, sacrificial love for each other. But Gaelic points out the tragedy. They've both given up their most valuable possession for gifts that are essentially useless to them now. And it could have all been avoided if they'd just talked to each other. Surprises, Gaelic says, are way overrated. We're much better off asking the other person what they want instead of trying to guess or trying to be creative or trying to be incredibly thoughtful. We're much better off simply asking, how can I show you that I love you? And then listening to their response. And that's the question that I want to bring to the text that Helen just read for us this morning. These verses paint the scene of a gift exchange, and it's got all the good hallmarks of a good gift exchange. It's got anxiety, it's got shock value, it's got evaluation. And in the end, I think it helps us understand the kind of gift that Jesus wants and appreciates. It helps us answer the question, God, how can I show you that I love you? What can I give you that you don't already have, God? So let's dig in. Like most gift-giving moments, there is an occasion to this party. It's not a birthday party. It's not an anniversary party. It's not an adoption party. It's a thank you party. Siblings, Martha, Mary, Lazarus, are throwing a party to Jesus to thank him for, you know, the itsy-bitsy detail of raising Lazarus from the dead. Verse 2. A dinner was prepared in Jesus' honor. Martha served. Lazarus was reclining with Jesus at the table. And at some point in the evening's festivities, verse 3, Mary took a 12-ounce jar of expensive perfume made from the essence of nard, and she anointed Jesus' feet with it, wiping his feet with her hair. Now, I'm not sure how much you know about nard. I had to do some research myself on it this week. Nard is a thick, dark liquid. It's derived from the roots and flowers of a plant that only grows in a specific altitude in the Himalayan mountains. Because it only grows in that one spot on the earth, it's a super rare thing. A teeny, tiny, tiny amount of it was expensive. A 12-ounce jar was super-duper expensive. It also has a strong, pleasant smell. People describe it as earthy or spicy or musty. It is so powerful and so pleasant that it was often used at burials to drive away and neutralize and eliminate the scent of a decaying corpse. Yankee candles have nothing on a jar of nard. That was Mary's gift to Jesus. Super powerful, super expensive, and super shocking. In John's account, Judas is the one who speaks up in protest over this gift. He has done his evaluation. He doesn't like it. In the Gospels of Mark and Matthew, a group of disciples actually complain. It's not one person, but several. You see, they've done the math here. According to Judas, the nard Mary poured on Jesus was worth an entire year's wages. Entire year's wages. All right, so picture the amount of money you make in a year. Got it? Okay. Now picture spending all of that money on one thing. All of it on one thing. And then picture that one thing being a jar of oil the size of a soda can. Okay? And now picture pouring that entire jar out onto a person, a year's worth of wages. 
Yeah, that's why Judas was so mad, right? A lot of us would be mad too. Mary's gift is so wasteful. Why in the world would she squander all that money by dumping it on Jesus? Verse 5, they could have sold the perfume and used the money for anything else, something else, anything else, something useful, I don't know, like feeding the poor. And I get their objection. I am constantly worried about waste, wasting time, wasting money, wasting opportunities. I want to maximize efficiency so that I can do the most that I can with the resources that I have. So I get the criticism here. Measured in just raw efficiency, Mary's gift does seem like an incredible waste. Now, John, in his gospel, is quick to point out that Judas has ulterior motives. He's the money keeper of the Mary band of disciples, and apparently he had a tendency to just take a little extra for himself. So when he saw the gift that Mary gave, he didn't see the gift. He didn't see the giver. He saw the monetary value that it represented. In his hands, that money would have been put to much better use, mostly for the poor, maybe just like a little bit for him. But in Mary's foolish hands, it all just went to waste. All eyes turn to Jesus. How would he respond? The recipient's of Mary's gift. Verse 7, Jesus says to Judas, leave her alone. Let her be. She did this in preparation for my burial. This sentence has caused a lot of confusion for translators. The New Living, which we usually preach out of here, smooths it out for us pretty nicely, but if you go back to the original Greek, it doesn't actually make a ton of sense. It literally says in the Greek, leave her alone so that she might keep this for the day of my burial so that she might keep this for the day. So it's confusing because Jesus seems to be talking about something in the future. But clearly Mary has just dumped out the whole jar. How can she be keeping something for his burial if she's just used it all up? The verb tense is weird. Here's my thought. It seems to me in this moment that Mary is really the only one who understands what Jesus is about to go through. She knows that Jesus is wanted by religious authorities. She knows that he's just raised her brother from the dead, and she knows that that news is just about to go viral in their community. Mary, I think, came to the sobering realization that Jesus' death was near. Very close, in fact. Remember, nard was a fragrance used to drive away the stench of death. And she poured a lot of it onto Jesus. John records that she poured it onto Jesus' feet, which is where students sat to learn from their rabbis at their feet. In John's gospel, he always depicts Mary actually sitting at Jesus' feet, a faithful follower, a learner, a friend. According to Matthew and Mark's gospel, Mary didn't only anoint Jesus' feet, she also poured it over his head as well. The smell filled the whole house, the gospels tell us. The nard would have soaked Jesus' clothes and his hair and his skin the powerful scent would have lingered on him for days. The pleasant, earthy scent would have lingered. Lingered when he was arrested less than a week later and put on trial. Lingered when his flesh was torn by Roman whips. Lingered as he carried a cross up a hill. Lingered as his hands and feet were pierced. Lingered as his body was lifted high. And through all of that pain and all of that suffering, through all of that abandonment, it's possible that the last pleasant scent Jesus smelled was the perfume Mary poured on him that day at that party. Perhaps this is what Jesus meant when he said Mary was keeping it 
for him, for his burial. Mary's gift could have lingered with him all the way to the tomb. That's how powerful it was. And that's why she gave it to him. Seen through this lens, Mary's gift, I don't think, is wasteful. I think it's beautiful. The most expensive, the most outrageous, the most valuable gift any of them had ever seen. And with that gift, she told Jesus in a tangible, physical, experiential way that she sensed what he was about to go through. Her gift, this lingering scent, created a connection between the two of them. It said, I love you. I'm with you. I cannot go exactly where you're going, but you are not alone as you go there. Her gift was a way for her to give herself, her whole self, to Jesus so that he could feel it even later. He was the resurrection and he was her life, so she held nothing back from him. I don't think God needs a percentage of our income. I don't think he needs two years of missionary work. I don't think he needs regular church attendance or good deeds. God doesn't need our time, our treasure, our talents. God already has the whole world. Psalm 50 says that the animals of the forest are his, the cattle on a thousand hills are his, the birds on the mountains, the creatures in the fields, all of that is his. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. What can we give God that God doesn't already have? What does God want from us? We don't have to guess. We know God wants us. God wants our whole selves without reservation, without holding anything back. And God will not take us by force, by coercion or manipulation. Instead, God chooses to woo us through Christ. In Jesus Christ, God has given himself to us fully and completely and unconditionally. He has poured himself out on us entirely so that his presence, his power lingers with us no matter where we go or what happens to us or what we do, to the end of the age and into the age to come. God wants us to receive that gift, to receive the Spirit who binds us to the Son and who makes us the family of God. This gift is an expression of freely given love, a love that isn't measured in percentages or converted into its monetary value. God gives himself to us fully. God wants us to give ourselves to him in return fully, to give our lives freely and to love God fully. Which sounds like really great, right? It's all conceptual. Like, let's love ourselves. Let's love God with our whole heart, right? Like, what does that actually look like? What does it look like to love God with everything we have? What's it look like practically? Well, I think in this passage, it looks a little different for each of us. Mary gets all the headlines in this story, right? Understandably so giving her whole self to Jesus by covering him with a year's worth of expensive perfume is pretty dramatic. It's the kind of thing that you remember and write stories about. But she's not the only one who gave herself to Jesus that night. At that thank you dinner, given in Jesus' honor, Lazarus is also there. And the text tells us that he was reclining at the table with him. Now, this posture, reclining at the table, was a posture of fellowship. It was a posture of conversation, of connection, eating together. Lazarus loved Jesus too, just like Mary did. His gift that evening was the gift of his undivided attention. He was fully present, fully engaged with the Lord, reclining with him at the table. To use the framework of the five love languages you guys might know, we might say that Lazarus gave Jesus quality time that evening. And let's not forget Martha. Martha. Same verse, Martha 
text tells us served. Martha served. Most scholars think that she was probably the oldest of the three. Perhaps she was used to being in charge. So she prepared the food that evening. She set the table. She refilled the cups. She gave second helpings. Her gift to Jesus that evening was the gift of logistics. Her gifts were acts of service. If we look at all three of these siblings, we see that there are many ways to give ourselves to Jesus, which I think frees us from our tendency to evaluate the gifts, to compare them to each other, to rank them. Was Mary's gift better than Martha's? Was it better than Lazarus's? I don't think so. I think Jesus received all their gifts that evening as expressions of their love for him. Each gift, according to their personalities, according to their talents, according to their means, they each gave what they had to give. Instead of taking our cues from Judas and evaluating or ranking other people's gifts, let's be more like the siblings who gave what they had to give, trusting that it would bring the Lord joy. What we give matters, and we all give in very different ways. I see it here every single week. There are 50 people that Planning Center can hold that serve. That's the limit of what we can do. And there are 50 people's names in Planning Center right now because 50 different people do different things here on Sunday mornings. I see you set soul food tables. I see you share from the front. I see you click through slides in the balcony. You play instruments. And you learn the names of kids. Like all the kids in this church, you know their names. You support ministries. You champion organizations in our community. You show up for each other. You babysit and you house sit and you pet sit. And it all matters. What you have to give is what you have to give. If someone else gives something that you can't or aren't able to, don't feel bad about yourself or be critical of them. Celebrate the gift and celebrate the giver. Be thankful that someone else can give what you cannot. What matters the most is that you give yourself completely to the Lord in whatever way you can. All your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. The siblings had a huge advantage over us. I'll be honest about that. They were with Jesus face to face. We're part of the group of people who came after, the people who do not have Jesus' physical presence with us anymore, like he said in verse 8. And because Jesus isn't standing here, we have to find another way to show our love. In a few more chapters, Peter is going to agonize over this same question. He will agonize over showing Jesus how much he loves him. So three times, Jesus will say to Peter, if you love me, if you love me, if you love me, feed my sheep. If you love me, take care of my people. In a little while, I'm not going to be here the same way that I'm here now, but know that when you take care of someone in need, when you feed someone who's hungry, when you give drink to someone who's thirsty, when you invite a stranger into your home, when you care for the sick, when you visit someone in prison, when you do any of these things, you're doing it to me, Jesus says. To show me your love, feed my sheep. And so Peter listened to the Lord, and he did those things. He gave his whole self to Jesus by nurturing, by guiding, by protecting people into the family of God. Whether Jews or Gentiles, Peter was a shepherd for the sheep. And Peter reminds us that there is a huge outward component to giving our whole selves to the Lord. One of the ways we give ourselves to Jesus is by giving ourselves to other people in his name. One of the ways we love God is by loving neighbor. 
There isn't one right way to do this. There's not one right way to give ourselves to Jesus or one right way to give ourselves to our neighbor. Maybe you're like Martha. You're a doer. You're a server. You're a planner. You're an organizer. You handle the logistics. That's your thing. Maybe you're like Lazarus, and your gift is your faithful presence, and it's quality time. You lend a listening ear. You engage in conversation. You share a meal with someone. Maybe you're more like Mary, and you give physical gifts, sparing no expense, so that even when you're not there, the connection that you have lingers. Maybe you're like Peter, and you defend those who need protection. You fight for those who are being hurt. You advocate those for those who are suffering, and that's what you do. Or maybe you have an entirely different gift, an entirely different way of giving. You don't have to do it the way that Mary or Martha or Lazarus or Peter did it. You get to do it the way that you do it. And you get to do it in lots of different ways at lots of different times, I think. The way you give yourself to God when you're 15 years old might be pretty different than the way you give yourself when you're 35. The way you give yourself when you're single might be pretty different than the way you give yourself as you become a parent. The gift of your lament is different than the gift of your rejoicing. And each of those things has its own season and rhythm. So wipe away any guilt that you might feel. Wipe away any pressure of obligation. Wipe away any comparison that you're tempted to make with someone else. Jesus has given himself to you completely and without reservation. God doesn't need anything from you. In Jesus, gifts are given freely and gifts are received freely. So what is your way of gift giving? What is your way of gift giving? What is your way of gift giving? Jesus loves you and wants to receive what you have to give. Not what someone else has to give, but what you have to give. Let's pray and let's ask the Spirit to reveal to us what it is that we have to give. And then be on the lookout for a moment to give it. A moment when you see someone and you really see them and you know what they're going through. And you have an impulse to do something crazy and good and wonderful and beautiful for them. Do it. Do that beautiful thing that love puts in your heart. Do it. Even if people think you're crazy and don't understand. Even if, like Judas, they complain or they criticize. Do that beautiful, extravagant thing. And do it because you love that person. And do it because you love Jesus. Amen? We're going to sing a song here in a moment. Um, and then we're going to gather around the Lord's table and celebrate communion this morning. This table is for all who are in Christ and for all who have received his life. And this includes youth and younger children who love Jesus and seek to follow him. So during this next song, if you want, you are invited to gather any children you might have upstairs in Kids Commons, and I want you to feel free to do that. Let's pray. Dear Lord, um, you have given us the gift of yourself. Your presence, your power, it lingers with us. It infuses us. It gives us life and hope, and it frees us to give ourselves, not out of a sense of obligation, not of a, uh, of a reciprocal kind of transactional kind of giving, Lord, not to earn favor, not to prove to you something about ourselves, not to 
evaluate or compare or build our worth around what we do, but it frees us to give ourselves fully and freely in joy. We know that you receive us and what we have to give. We love, Lord, because you first loved us. We feel that love this morning, and we ask that it would propel us and compel us and inspire us to love this world in your name. Give each of us a sense of what that might be for us, what our special and unique and gift and giving opportunity might be. It's your name we pray. Amen.